He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, New York. Also serving the entire metropolitan area of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. With us, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we have Zach Williams on what's going on in Albany, Governor David Patterson, and uh, what happened with Judge LaSalle. And let's start off the show with Mike Stoller on the real estate in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I'm very lucky to have the Chief Commercial Real Estate Officer and the Regional President for Ocean First Bank, my friend Dan Harris. Thanks for coming here. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, you know, we heard over the period of time that things are getting brighter. How are they getting brighter with regard to financing of commercial real estate today? There's tremendous opportunity out there. Um, the the Recently, it's changed a little bit, though. The the funds, the REITs, um, the home offices are doing a lot more commercial real estate lending than before, in some cases more than banks are collectively, so that it's shifted quite a bit that um, the, the development jobs and the repositioning jobs, especially the larger ones, are often done by, funded by non-bank entities. So for my audience, explain what a non-bank entity is. It would be a... Um, a large fund, a large REIT, a, a large family office, which is you know managing someone's personal wealth, and uh, Michael Dell has one, for example, in that genre, and they they have large capacity, and they are really smart real estate people, and they go after the deals that the banks are a little more concerned conservative. They're a little nervous about it's a the cash flow is not proven. It's a development job. They are they are doing a lot more of that than the banks are right now. And what do we, we what do we call this uh, over there? This is note-to-note financing because these people have the money, but they right. want to leverage the amount of money. Right. Explain They're, to me what the note-to-note concept a is. A business has arisen. Um, it's been around, but it's getting much more popular now where the fund will make the, the, the loan on the development and then a bank, and we do some of this at Ocean First, then the bank will lend to the fund some of those proceeds. So as an example, the, the fund may do a loan that's 70% of the cost of the development, and then we might come and backstop that and lend them 70% of their 70%. And the beauty for the bank is that although the underlying transaction is development, we're in a very low risk piece of that particular credit. So what happens when you go to the borrower, who may be a good borrower of yours, and you say to them, look, you have to put additional capital or equity in the deal, what are you going to do for me? It's a real challenge. And banks that are deeply into paper that was originated, loans that were originated six, seven, eight years ago, have that issue. Hopefully, the rents have grown enough over that time that although they've had a really terrific rate for the last six, seven, eight years, now they have to refinance. Hopefully, the cash flow on that building has grown faster than the expenses and the new 
available cash flow can fund a 5.5% loan or whatever the loan might be recast at today. Uh, fortunately, for certain people, they, they can get increases over there, but in New York City rent-regulated properties, you can't charge that, so you don't have the opportunity to capture the rate over there. You have to, the shortfall could be significant over here. It could be significant, and that's a very uncomfortable discussion you'll have to have with your customer. And, you know, they can do two things. They can take the loan elsewhere and, and, and hope for better treatment, or they can reduce the loan so that the math works and the cash flow supports the, the smaller loan at the current rates. What, what are the regulators saying about that? We haven't run into that. Um, it's a case-by-case -case basis, and what a bank will normally do is if they have a, a property that doesn't cash flow at their minimum requirements, they start downgrading it, they watch it. You know, a lot of these are very established owners. They keep paying the payment, so you have that. It's not like the, many are defaulting in that situation, but when they have when their maturity comes up, a bank has to make a, a gut decision on how much this customer means to them and whether they give them some more time, force them to pay it down, or just go along with a slightly lower than policy cash flow. So here's the question. What is the asset class that you like? And what are the asset classes that you're not comfortable enough because of interest rates and so on? I think there's, avail there's loans that can be made on every asset class. Currently in the market, the most favored asset classes continue to be multifamily. Multifamily is still very strong in most cases, rent regulated aside. Suburban multifamily, new construction multifamily is still very strong. The population grows. I mean, that, that area has remained very solid. Obviously, industrials, everyone likes industrial right now because of the change since COVID. A lot more companies are going to have more inventory in the U.S. Manufacturer will come back to the U.S. over time. So the increases in rents on industrial has been very significant. So a lot of lenders are comfortable with that. Retail, certain retail is doing extraordinarily well. You know, shopping centers with a tenant level, a credit tenant Food Anchor and, you know, your typical locals, the pizzeria, the salon, those continue to be strong in a lot of locations. Again, it's always location by location. The strip retail is still pretty strong if the rents are at market. So there are spots of retail that are still quite strong. You know, the, the old mall is that doesn't have Food Anchor, that's your larger department stores. That's obviously the most challenging segment of the retail market for everybody. That's, that's a real problem area. With, with regard to uh, hospitality and the, the restaurant business, because I know at one time the bank had a significant port portfolio of restaurants. How do you look at the restaurant business? Today? We still do. Uh, the, the portfolio we have is largely in, in Midtown Manhattan and has performed extraordinarily well. Uh, through COVID, the PPP was very helpful to those customers. Uh, and now they're in the position, a lot of those, they own multiple bars or restaurants. They're looking to add more of those that didn't quite survive because they didn't have the, the depth that, that our customers happen to have. So it's, it's a difficult loan to do from scratch. You really need people that have been in the business a long time. And, you know, we're fortunate we have a lot of that. But the, the restaurant business is okay, but you have to really know what you're doing. It looks like a, uh, a number of um, banks are out of the market, as they say today. Uh, do you concur with that? I do. It's, it's been the last six months, uh, the, the end of 22 into early 23, have seen a lot of banks back away from commercial real estate due to the rates, due to potential recession, all of those things, and people just are taking a hard pause. Those of us that are still in the market are 
have wonderful opportunities to do some extraordinarily strong loans and, you know, priced a little more competitively uh, than they were five or six months ago. When, well, when, and what, what about the term recourse? Are you now asking for recourse to your borrower? What's the, the, the flavor the, of the month on that? Recourse is, is a great tool when there's some transition involved. If you have a large lease rolling in a couple of years, you might say, listen, if, if the lease rolls and it's not replaced, you go recourse. So you structure so that recourse comes into play when there's stress. But going out of the box, if the building's cash flowing and has solid tenancy, it's going to be very hard to get recourse in this market. So what about a, a construction loan? How how easy is it to get a construction loan in this market? There's there's a number of construction lenders out there. Uh, are they are they the alternative lenders or are they the the alternatives? Banks? A combination. The vanilla deals, the uh, subdivisions, the housing deals are still pretty much banked because that's there's there's real certainty in the end valuation. We all understand that. The larger, more complicated deals are very often done by the funds, and we might backstop them with a note-on-note deal, but the larger, they're doing the more complicated, larger deals uh, on, the constru- on the construction side. It's not a bad time, okay? People believe that banking is in trouble. I don't see banking in trouble. I see good banks surviving and growing. And I know that people at Ocean First and the entire community that you and I know well is going to be there. And I'd like to thank you today for being here on the Stoller Report. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. I am the eye in the sky looking at you. I can your Rita Cosby is joining us to talk to some of our guests. And good Sunday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Cats Roundtable. I'm Rita Cosby. So much happening in the skies this week. And joining us is Steve Cates. He's an astronomer. He's a TV personality, a legend, and he is also known as Dr. Sky. So great to have you with us. Well, good morning, Rita, and good Sunday morning to all the listeners out there. I thought we'd start off this morning by talking about a little bit of information that seems to not end about the Chinese surveillance balloon. We find out, Rita, that the Pentagon actually tried to shoot down the Chinese surveillance balloon over an area called the Beartooth Mountains in Montana on February 1st. But apparently it failed as the F-22s used their guns instead of a missile to deflate the balloon. And it goes on to say that failure, they say, was due to the limiting altitude of the F-22 as the balloon was at 65,000 feet. Well, Rita, I don't really buy that story because the F-22, I've seen it. I know so many of the pilots who fly it. It apparently could probably easily fly upward toward that height. But again, the backstory on this is Biden wanted to keep the balloon story secret so that it would not interfere with uh, Secretary Blinken's diplomatic trip to China. So what I'm saying is we're hearing, and isn't this amazing? The story never ends. And there's so many other parts of this story that don't make sense. And the bottom line is we always want to get to the truth. So that's what we always want to talk about, right? You know, Dr. Sky, what about also, it's like a balloon group, um, I'm sure you've heard this, yes. uh, where they said they've lost this basically $12 balloon, and they think it might be one of those other objects, you know, one of the three sure. that were shot down. Is that possible? Well, it is possible, and this is another bizarre part of the story, and it almost is laughable in a way. It says, and it continues, that the story of these objects over Alaska, Canada, and Lake Huron as you reported, may have been hobbyist Pico balloons gone missing, and one of them had the call letters, a radio call letter of K9YO-15. 
and that the balloon reader cost as little as $12. But here's the part that, I mean, any average person who thinks about this stuff would say, wait a minute, there's something missing here. So if that's the case, why was there reports of our sophisticated F-22s and F-16s where we found out that there was some sort of interference with the sensors of these highly you know, sophisticated military airplanes? So I guess what I'm saying is, and I'm sure a lot of people out there would agree with me, obviously this, uh, this story doesn't make sense. And, I, and I'm interested to hear what so many other people have to say on this. Yeah, I agree. There's still so many unanswered questions, and it seems like, you know, he underreacted on the first one. Now it may be overreacting on, what, hobbyist balloons? I mean, that's incredible. Would they have gone that high? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's one of the things, and it's possible, but I'm saying a tiny little balloon like that to potentially have the ability to interfere with sophisticated military aircraft, the story doesn't make sense. But going on, Rita, with the China threat, Naval Intelligence Admiral, he states, and I'll tell you who he is, it's Rear Admiral Mike Studeman. He's the director or commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He says how naive and blind most Americans are to the whole China threat. So hopefully by this radio show and many others, and yours always, obviously, that people will open their minds up and realize that China is doing so much damage to us, and many people are just so oblivious to that. But I don't really get into the politics of that here. We basically talk about what we see in the sky. And moving on, Rita, we always have the mystery of the week here on this particular segment on this radio show. And this week we're talking about quantum physics, and that is the really low, tiny little particles in matter that are so, so amazing. And here's the question that I pose. What is nothing in space? In other words, even in the vacuum of space, even in the remote parts of space where nothing should be, quantum physics says that there's something there. And quantum physicists call it quantum foam. Now, what could that be? That even in empty space, there is still hidden energy in the form of this quantum foam. It's the smallest component of space-time. And Rita, this whole subject of quantum physics is so fascinating. It's going to open so many minds to people out there that we now know so little about our universe and that there's so much more to learn. And we end off always with something called the live sky. And that is what people Exactly. By the way, you've got it all covered, too. But before you move on, I've got to ask you, quantum <laughs> sure. foam, how did they discover that? That is so fascinating, Dr. Sky. Well, it was actually, Rita, a theoretical physicist that came up with this concept. And they're saying that they can prove it by taking, let's say, two metal plates and separating them by maybe a millimeter. And as they continue to notice the movement of atoms in there, even when they reduce the temperatures down to almost what they call absolute zero, they're saying that there is still some force there that obviously we don't really understand. But this is one of the methodologies in which they found this. Because everything we talk about with gravity, what is gravity? It's the warpage of space-time. And even the great Einstein himself couldn't figure out what was out there in deep space. And he called it something very interesting. He called it spooky action at a distance. So quantum physicists are continuing to explore the sub-subatomic particles that make up this universe, and it's really fascinating. But on the other side, Rita, people can see things in the sky. And this particular weekend, we always highlight the beautiful romantic dance between the planet Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, and the mighty <laughs> Jupiter. If you just look into the southwest sky at sunset, this is most, the most beautiful and amazing. Venus is moving closer to Jupiter, and you can see it with the naked eye. These are two brilliant planets. We have a new moon, meaning the dark of the moon on the 20th. And if you really want to see something, they get out those cameras and smartphones with your great you know, resolution on the cameras. Take a look on the evening of the 22nd. 
the crescent moon will be near the goddess of love and beauty, the planet Venus, and then the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter gets best by the end of the month. And Rita, they'll be one full moon diameter apart. And this also goes back to biblical stories about the star of Bethlehem. I call it sacred geometry and the beauty of the nighttime sky. And we remind our friends here at WABC, always go to the Dr. Sky Experience at WABCradio.com for our podcast and blog. And it's a real honor to talk with you, Rita. Always enjoy your program. And by the way, always love hearing from you. Um, we love hearing about astronomy and what's going on in the sky. I just have to ask, you talked about the love story between Venus and Jupiter. I thought, sure. I thought it was women are from Venus and men are from Mars. So where, where's the men part? Where's the men? You missed that part, Dr. Sky. <laughs> well, Jupiter, if we go back into mythology, Rita, is the god of gods. And he is obviously the ruler of the universe in these ancient mythologies. So Venus is actually courting, or I should say maybe the other way. Jupiter's courting Venus. It's a beautiful love story. And what? Even if it's post-Valentine's Day period, well, the month of February should be the month of love. But don't you think on a better way, every day should be the day of love. And why can't we all just simply get along? Wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. Well, we love hearing everything about the skies from you. Who knows it better than you, Steve Cates, Dr. Sky. Thank you so much for being with us. This was fantastic and so glad to have you here on the Cats Roundtable this weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Rita, and a good morning to everybody listening. Well, let's go to Kathy Wild, who certainly knows the impact that crime is having on businesses. Kathy Wild joins us now, president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. It's a not-for-profit that works with all the big city leaders and businesses. Nobody knows business uh, better than Kathy Wild. Kathy, great to have you here on Cats at Night. This is Rita Cosby with uh, with the boys here in studio. <laughs> Glad to be with you. Thanks, Rita. You know, I want to start because we were just talking about crime. We're going to get to also, of course, the cost of remote work, the impact it's having on New York. Um, but first, your reaction. There was a new article just recently that says that shoplifting, for example, up 45 percent, uh, 63,000 complaints last year. It's driving businesses away. Talk about the impact crime is having. Well, the most important thing to recognize is that it's a very small number of people that are committing one crime after another and getting, uh, you know, having a revolving door justice situation. And that's the real frustration. We're, we're not talking about, in a city of eight and a half million, we're talking about like 2,000 recidivist repeat offenders that are causing most of the problems. So it's very important that we figure out how to work together to get something done. And I think I'm feeling that finally we're at that moment where whether it's the DAs or the judges, the governor is now calling uh, in her budget is asking for the judges to have greater ability to make decisions based on who is the perpetrator, not not just some some law that's come out of Albany that says for these crimes you don't have to go to jail. If somebody's committed the crime 20 times, it's time to go to jail. There has been such a focus. Don't you feel it now from all sides? Because business people and residents, it doesn't matter what political stripe, they want to be safe. They want to know the city's safe to do business in and live in. It is the number one issue for business in terms of bringing their employees. We recently had a meeting with, Ken Griffin, the CEO of a big financial company named Citadel, he famously left Chicago after 
in one year, 11 of his employees were attacked violently. And he said, I can't recruit talent and bring them to this city anymore. And he and other employers sat with the mayor and said, you know, right now we're trusting you to get this right because we aren't going to be able to bring talent to New York City if we go the direction Chicago is going. So hopefully, certainly the mayor and the governor get the message Our job now is to work on everybody else. Before we let you go, Kathy, too, I know you want to talk about remote work costs, just the impact that all of that is happening. Uh, There was a report, it was like $12 billion uh, that New York is losing because of remote work. Yes, there was an article in Bloomberg uh, based on a research study that said, I just want to clarify, they were talking about what Manhattan is losing because of remote work. Because prior to the pandemic, Manhattan had a million three office workers coming into the office, most of them five days a week at least and staying long hours. Post-pandemic today, in the survey we just completed in January, only 52% of those office workers are back in the office every day. So that's having a big impact on this, particularly the Manhattan Midtown business district, but somewhat through the rest of Manhattan. But the 12 billion is not disappearing. You know, people may not, may not be eating in food, on food trucks or, you know, buying from uh, going to the bar after work in Manhattan, but they are spending that money in their neighborhood because they haven't, dis- those people haven't disappeared. They're working somewhere else, some of them in coffee shops where they're patronizing there. So the neighborhood economies are good. I learned today that by 2021, by the end of 2021, our economy was bigger than it had been in 2019. So it's not a negative impact on the overall economy. It's a negative impact on certain areas, certain businesses. We've got to focus on fixing those things zero in on where the problems are with geographically and it's it's mostly Manhattan largely midtown in the older districts where they've got a 21% commercial vacancy rate which is you know unheard of so we've got to focus on that what are we going to do how are we going to bring people back there part of that is through residential conversion of yeah. older office buildings Part of that is through bringing in entertainment, culture, etc. Absolutely. Well, Kathy Wild, always we love having you on. Uh, you certainly know New York business better than anybody. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Zach Williams, New York Post reporter. Zach, this is Rita Cosby with John, also Judge Weinberg, Ernie Anastas, and former Governor David Patterson. Great to have you with us. Tell us what happened in Albany. Thanks for having me. A real dream team over there. So today was the much-awaited hearing in Suffolk County Supreme Court on a lawsuit filed last week by a Republican state senator that initially aimed to force a floor vote on centrist Court of Appeals, uh, Chief Judge nominee Hector LaSalle. Now, 
Earlier this week, things really took an interesting turn when this, when State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins uh, suddenly announced that, in fact, her chamber would bring this nomination to the floor after weeks of saying that a Judiciary Committee vote, 10-9 against LaSalle last month, was sufficed, uh, legally speaking, to formally reject the nominee. Governor Kathy Hochul disagreed with that, but did very little in the ensuing weeks to really push her nominee. She didn't Sue, she really said very little at all, except uh, when answering questions where she said, you know, she was keeping all her options open. In steps the Republican state senator, not exactly doing Hoko a favor, because on the one hand, they could just get a judge if they want, a relative centrist. On the other hand, this lawsuit stirs a little trouble with uh, the Democrats. But today was the big day. And Democrats, by bringing this, state Senate Democrats, by bringing this nomination to the floor, had hoped to make the lawsuit moot. You know, you can't sue to bring a fuller vote if that floor vote already happened, right? And that was part of uh, a larger effort to avoid a, you know, letting the courts make a, a real historic uh, precedent uh, setting decision that would forevermore say that a Judiciary Committee vote was not good enough for judicial nominees. So, so there's a lot there to unpack, but long story short, this two month saga isn't quite over yet. Zach, it's uh, Judge Richard Wong. So what did the Supreme Court Justice uh, do? Did he reserve decision on it? Well, he appeared very skeptical of the state Senate Democrats argument that in the state constitution, you know, that the state constitution gives them enough leeway to make their own internal rules to basically let a committee vote suffice. Now, they didn't make a decision today. It could come as soon as Tuesday. Mm. And remember, today, the Court of Appeals notified or was officially notified that or officially notified the Commission on Judicial uh, Nominations that there was a vacancy. This whole process to find a chief judge starts all um, over again, starting anew. Exactly. Zach, it's David Patterson. I think if the uh, Constitution wanted to give them leeway, they would have written it that way. And they didn't. It's plain language. It says it goes to the Senate, just like the U.S. Senate. And remember, Judge Bork lost in the committee in 1987, but they still sent it to the U.S. Senate for a vote. The governor is absolutely well, what, correct. Yeah. Zach, uh, as a reporter uh, advancing the story, what do your sources tell you? What can we expect next? Where is this going to go? Well, as far as the lawsuit goes, you know, all eyes are still on, in Suffolk County and decision that could mm. come on Tuesday. That could you know, probably won't be the end of it. You know, no matter what happens, I right. would expect one side or the other would uh, appeal. And this could go all the way up to the Court of Appeals, mm-hmm. ironically enough. Might even go through the second department where LaSalle currently is the presiding judge uh, of that appellate division. So well, let's see what happens then. I think in terms of the broader story here, you know, this this almost existential fight that we were seeing between the executive right. and the legislative branches. Um, it's starting to cool down a little bit mm-hmm. this week. You know, Andrea Stewart-Cousins and, and Kathy Hochul both made a point to say that this uh, nomination and the two-month fight around it would not affect state budget negotiations mm-hmm. ahead of the April 1st deadline. That may or may not be true, but, you know, when we talk about this, you know, this this years-long, um, maybe escalating fight, you might say, in Albany between the left and the center on the Democratic side of the aisle, at least, you know, there's plenty of other fodder to fight over <laughs> besides this uh, nomination. But one key thing, this is where it gets really fun. Mm. It gets really fun here is the the commission has in the past worked relatively fast. Now, they have 120 days to find seven candidates for the governor to choose. But okay. that 
in the past, a few years ago, they got through it in 36 days. Oh. Now, in 36 days, wow. we're just like a week or two out from that state budget has, uh, deadline. So depending on who the governor might pick, you know, she it, it, the, the timing's going to be really tight because oh, yeah. she once the nominees come through, she ha- she has to wait at least two weeks. Absolutely. But, wow. Uh, long story short, we might see more fighting on this. And joining us now is the man that John Katsimatidis always says King's Highway is named after and so much more is the former New York Congressman Peter King. Congressman, great to have you here on the show. Rita, great to be with you. It really is. Thank you. You know, there has been, I just think there's a flood of questions about leadership this week and lack thereof. Let's first start um, with the Biden press conference. Finally, President Biden breaks his silence and he does a news conference, if you will, but it was one-sided. He didn't take any questions about the balloon incident. How do you think he fared on the messaging? And what did you make of the fact it took them so long to make any statements and it left a lot more questions than answers, it seems? Yeah, it was really disappointing. I'm not here to second guess the president per se on whether he should have done this on that day or something else on the other day. But the fact is he owes the American people an explanation as to why he did respond the way he did or maybe why he didn't respond. Um, We're getting different stories from the White House. One is that, uh, you know, they didn't know about the balloon coming in. It was too late and they couldn't shoot it down because it would be over uh, you know, populated areas, and that's why they waited so across the entire country. But then they tell us they knew about these balloons over a year ago, and was, and they were following this particular balloon, you know, since it left China, Hunan Island uh, in China. So, again, you have those, you know, that mixed story there. Then you have why they shot down the other three objects. Uh, some people say it was nothing more than, you know, a regular balloon. Uh, then there's, you know, still the implication it could have come from China. And listen, I can understand in the fog of war how mistakes are made, or just in the fog of a possible war or aggressive action. But in that case, then he has the opportunity to spell out as much as he can, not give up national security secrets or anything, but to at least let the American people know, you know, what we, uh, to the extent he can, what we knew, when we knew it, why they took the action they did. And it's very possible that mistakes were made. And that, that can be understandable. But what's not understandable or excusable is not acknowledging that. And I'm saying what we learned from that, uh, you know, why, how we've adapted now. Now that we do know what China is capable of, what are we doing you know, to counter that? This is all things that should be discussed rather than him giving an incomplete news conference and then sort of walking off like in a huff that he was offended that people were asking him questions. In time of crisis, that's when a leader's leadership, if you will, really shines through. And his did not shine through very well this time. How do you think he's handling China? I mean, he came out and basically said they're a competitor, but he didn't. A lot of people have criticized him for not being tough enough on China, especially because he is saying that first one was a spy balloon that went over all these secret sites in the United States. Is he tough enough on China? I would, no, I would say no. And uh, listen, I think he's been strong and basically suggesting that we will defend Taiwan if China attacks. But then he sends a mixed message by basically saying, yeah, we did sh- shoot down four objects because we thought they may have come from China. But at the same time, saying the relations haven't been affected at all and we're carrying on business as usual. You can't have it both ways, especially when we know that they... Uh, you know, they're constantly expanding in the South Pacific and uh, economically in Central America and Africa and Europe. I mean, uh, you know, the Middle East, they are 
China is an expanding nation. They're being increasingly aggressive. And the president cannot afford to be sending mixed signals at a time like this. So obviously that first balloon, I mean, that was more than just a balloon. It sounds harmless, but I mean, apparently the equipment that was in there and, you know, the level of surveillance that could bring about and invading our airspace. Uh, this is not a trivial thing. This isn't you know, some guy flying a balloon. It's a foreign country sending a very sophisticated weapon. In effect, that's what it is, because it's, it's, it's stealing and seizing intelligence from us through our airspace. This isn't something from you know, satellite far away. This is something that w- was in uh, American airspace, and we can't allow that to go unchallenged. You know, one of the other things on leadership this week, Congressman Peter King, is the fact uh, of this Ohio train derailment. It is so heartbreaking uh, when you see the images of the plume. And there's a lot of questions about leadership there, too. Uh, Where is President Biden on that one? He has not visited, hasn't commented even on it. And then you've got the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who basically hasn't said anything either. He's done a tweet or two. Um, Are you seeing a void of leadership there as well? Absolutely. And again, you should definitely have had, if not the president, then certainly the vice president. And in any event, the secretary of transportation had to be there. What Buttigieg was doing, I don't know. These guys find excuses to attend any event and to be critical of anything that remotely affects Republicans or or Donald Trump. And yet when something like this happened, I can't imagine living in a place like East Palestine and seeing that happen, seeing that in your literally in your own backyard. Uh, I mean, what's going to happen uh, as far as the potential danger to this generation, to future generations, to pregnant women, uh, to uh, the environment itself. I mean, that is ugly to look at. And for them to act, again, like it's business as usual. Uh, again, until Buttigieg is willing to go in and drink water and to spend time uh, in that community, you can't believe it's safe. And it's just uh, when where he's been, I don't know. I mean, he's supposed to be the very the great communicator. That's one of the reasons he was supposedly picked, because he's so effective at getting a message out. Well, he's totally failed on this one. And listen, it's, you know, uh, you and I are maybe about 800 miles away, 700 miles away, whatever it is, 600 miles. The fact is, if that was in your backyard, think how panic-stricken we'd all be. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen all these images of families who have been so concerned and, and kids who have had coughs and respiratory, you know, respiratory problems, skin problems yep. as a result of this. Uh, they have a right to be concerned and they're going, where is everybody? Do you think that this is going to be really detrimental to Buttigieg, who a lot of people were seeing as maybe a, a future star in the Republican Party, even a potential presidential candidate? Well, I, I thought he was overrated from the start, but I think, that, you know, this just adds to that. Uh, he is uh, uh, really missing in action. And, you know, there's not often that many crises that involve a transportation secretary, which involve perhaps life or death or even future generations. But this is one. And he really failed to step up. So he has uh, really uh, a lot of a lot of questions to answer. And uh, he uh, this is a definite a failure of leadership. And if he can't do it as transportation secretary, how could anyone ever expect him to do, you know, do the job as president of the United States? Yeah, and those images are so heartbreaking and hard to erase. And again, here it has been so long since this happened and still MIA. Um, Congressman Peter King, uh, the great former congressman from New York, uh, great to have you here on the Cats Roundtable. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Vita, thank you. And again, let's enjoy the rest of the Sunday. To my friends in New York, say hello. Welcome back. To the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. New York.
York State Senate rejecting Kathy Hochul's nominee to lead the state's highest court in a big, unexpected, historic vote that just happened a few hours ago. And who better? Melissa DeRosa. Uh, she's the former secretary to Governor Cuomo, really the right-hand co- top staffer uh, for Governor Cuomo. Melissa, great to have you here. This is Rita Cosby with John Katz and a great full house. Uh, what is your reaction? This is huge news. I mean, my reaction is totally not surprised. Um, we've all been talking about it on the show for the last month and a half at this point. I think I said uh, almost six weeks ago that I predicted that if it ever got to the floor, this is exactly how it would go down. But what I thought was so fascinating about today was sort of the theater of it. So, you know, the Senate Republicans, Kathy Hochul threatens that if they don't bring a floor vote, she's going to sue to force a floor vote. She then doesn't sue. She, you know, she's got the bullet in the chamber. She threatens she's going to do it. She doesn't do it. She, like, looks totally feckless and sort of, you know, like, is not taking control of the situation at all. Into the void steps the Senate Republicans, who basically say, we are going to fight to uphold the constitutionality of this process of selecting Court of Appeals judges. We're going to sue the Senate Democrats. The Senate Democrats sort of are in a little bit of a corner because I think they weren't sure if they'd win in court. And at the same time, who wants to go through discovery? Who wants to go through a lawsuit? Who wants to spend the money? So, you know, last night, yesterday, they sort of hatched this plan that today they're going to just do a floor vote and it's going to go down along party lines. But you know what's interesting, but Melissa, you know what's interesting? A couple of the key Democrats, some of the ones who might have voted for LaSalle happen to be out of town today happened to be out of town. And, you know, look, what I just told you is what I hear from my sources. This was not decided today. It was decided yesterday. So I don't think that that was an accident. So, you know, look, profiles encourage all around. Right. And (laughs) what I found so fascinating is that Hector LaSalle, who has been put through the ringer, whose entire background and history as a jurist was completely distorted unfairly throughout this process by the far left and some in the media had the backbone to go sit in that chamber today, even though the entire vote was a farce and we knew it was going to go down. Where was Kathy Hochul? Kathy Hochul was at a Michael Kors fashion show in New York City. Melissa, this is Pete King. Let me ask you a question, and I don't mean this is a softball. Why would Andrew Cuomo, whatever anyone thinks of Andrew Cuomo, I can't imagine this going down if he was the governor. Oh, Congressman, you and I both, and I think everyone in the studio and probably listening, whether they like him or not, know that this would never have happened. Never would have happened. You know, look, she she bungled it from the beginning. She let them push her around. She had no plan. She knew there was going to be opposition. She didn't line up the proper validator. She didn't have a real campaign. They started to completely distort the man's record as a jurist. There was no pushback factually for weeks. It was, you know, it was politically painful to watch for those of us who care about politics and government. And I just thought the perfect ending today was the sight of this guy who has devoted his life to public service sitting up in that, you know, up in the galley, watching this vote go down where he knows he's going to lose. But he had the backbone to sit there and see it through. And she was sitting at a Michael Kors fashion show in New York City. So let me ask you, me, Melissa, real, the perfect ending to this debacle. Melissa, what does it mean to Congressman Pete King's point? What does it mean for the future and, and basically the political capital of Kathy Hochul now? I mean, this is a this is big smear in her face. And you, as you mentioned, she's at a fashion show. My goodness. 
No, Rita, I mean, you're, you're nailing it exactly right. The larger picture here is that for the last, you know, 12 years when Andrew Cuomo was governor, I think that the people of the state were used to a, a really strong executive. Again, whether you liked him or not, you knew he was decisive. You knew he was effective. You knew he carried the ball across the line. If there's a weather emergency, a pandemic, a big piece of legislation, he was going to step up and get it done. And what I think was so incredible about what's happened here over the last two months is we have seen a complete reorientation of power in Albany. The legislature is now in charge. And I think what's a little bit scary about that to the more moderates in the state, including myself, I'm a Democrat, but I consider myself a left center Democrat. Melissa, you know, very, very far to the left. Look, Ed, Ed and so Cox it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Go ahead, Chairman. Sorry about that. Yeah, look, look, they've got super majorities in both houses of the legislature. It is a veto-proof legislature, so it's not too hard for them to take control. But here they want control for a particular reason. They want to have a chief judge who will reverse the decision with respect to redistricting that Chief Judge DeFiori made. In essence, having a special master redraw all the state Senate districts as well as the congressional districts. Hacking Jeffries is pushing to have a chief judge who reverse that 4-3 decision in favor of having the special master to 4-3 so that they can, the legislature can gerrymander as they want. You know, you may be right about that. I think that they've got an agenda, clearly, and the point is they're going to use their muscle to see it through. And, I, you know, what's interesting is, Chairman, you know, when we were there in office in the last couple of years, there were super majorities in the Senate and the Assembly. This wasn't a new concept. You know, Kathy Oakle's not the first governor to have to deal with super majorities. But when we were there, we still seated Canatero. And we had DeFiori and we had these judges who were more middle of the road, left of center. A Michael of Garcia, great judge. Absolutely. exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like they will push you around if they think you can be pushed around. And I think that, you know, she she keeps saying, you know, I've got an iron fist. Well, that, in, a, Melissa, you know, in this glove, but it's like, you know, they're, they're giving you the finger. So it, it, what are you going to do? At some point, you've got to push back and assert yourself. And I don't know that she's capable. And joining us now to discuss all of this is former New York Governor David Patterson. Governor Patterson, great to have you here on the Cats Roundtable. Well, thank you, Rita. And if the Democrats wanted to reject Judge LaSalle, they can do that. The people elected them to take that vote, and that's the vote that they took. So that reflects, I guess, the people. But the process, I thought, really disrupts and in many ways mangles any interpretation of the New York State Constitution and the United States Constitution. They both say that uh, there will be, uh, well, in, in the case of the United States Constitution, the president just picks the person they want to be the Supreme Court justice, and most of the time they are confirmed by the United States Senate. In New York State, they have a panel of seven uh, uh, people, and they come out and they recommend seven potential nominees to the court. That's what happened in this case. But what was different is that a group of legislators wrote a letter to the governor and said, if you take any of these people and they listed their names, uh, we will not confirm them. So they usurped the process that was given to a select panel in the first place. And that's what started this problem and everything else, as they say in the law, 
was fruit of the poisonous tree. Well, and you know, it's interesting, too. Uh, it wasn't expected to sort of have this full vote. Many people clearly think it was a reaction to the looming lawsuit that was coming, by the way, from Republicans. Uh, and then they suddenly do a vote. And it was when a number of people who might have even voted for LaSalle happened to be off that day. What was your reaction just to the fact that suddenly it was this full vote that was taking place and a lot of the key people weren't there? Well, I think that there were two people who were going to vote for LaSalle and they weren't there. But he lost uh, 39 to 20. So I don't think that that changed the process at all. But what I do think uh, happened was that the Democrats in the Senate decided they didn't want to hear the court vote because they might want to go through this process again. So what they did was they brought the motion to the floor, which is how it should have been done in the first place, and, uh, and voted him down. And I don't think they wanted the Republicans to get credit for winning the lawsuit, which they would have won. I am absolutely sure of that, because the plain language doctrine basically dictates that if it says it's approved by the Senate, it means the whole Senate. Uh, the majority leader of the Senate, Andrew Stewart Cousins, interprets it to mean in the Senate process. Well, if they wanted it to go through a Senate process, like through committee and then to the floor, they would have written that, but they did not. So the interpretation of the law will probably go before uh, a higher court one day. And I am sure that they will understand that the Senate means the entire body. Remember, in 1987, Robert Bork was appointed by President Reagan. He was voted down in the committee, but they referred it along to the entire Senate so that every senator could express their view, their advice and consent was that he should not serve, and the Senate did vote him down. So you could like the way they voted, you could not like it, but at least they went through the legislative process, which seems to be eluding too many people in Albany these days. Yeah, uh, you know, we were on uh, Cats at Night, and soon after that vote happened, and one of the guests that um, was on with us was Melissa DeRosa, who, of course, uh, was, you know, the right-hand person to Governor Cuomo. She brought up the point uh, with all of us that the, uh, where was it? Kathy Hochul wasn't there. She was at a fashion event. She was at a Michael Kors event. How do you think she handled this? I just cringed when I saw Poor Judge LaSalle, who I've known for 20 years, sitting there by himself. I mean, he looked like the defendant in a grand jury more than uh, uh, a candidate to be the chief judge of the state of New York. So I guess that it wasn't possible for the governor to get back on time. It would have been um, a pretty interesting situation if she went there and sat next to him. Uh, you, you know, that would have uh, stated a purpose there. But I don't. I don't I don't think that anybody knew that this vote was going to take place until about an hour before they they uh, gaveled in, into session. But I think that the governor now has to consider the fact that they might do what they did this time, that they might do it again. And my suggestion to the governor is when they send you a letter and saying uh, basically threatening not to appoint certain people that you might choose, you take the letter and send it back to them and tell them until you do something that is concurrent with what is the uh, dicta of the Constitution, then we, I'm not even going to appoint a chief judge. And at that point, the uh, 
the deputy chief judge would have the right temporarily to appoint a seventh judge to the Court of Appeals. So do you see her doing that in the future? Because obviously it, it puts sort of future votes in jeopardy, certainly. This sets a pattern. I, I think she might. I think she was really trying to have a good relationship with the legislature going into a new session and aware that the fact that they have a veto-proof majority in both the Senate and the Assembly, she gave them the pay raise as kind of an incentive, and uh, they decided that they would take the money and also take the power at the same time. And I thought, based on how she's treated the legislature, that that was really uh, disrespectful of the governor and also her role in the process. And, you know, sooner or later, the Republicans are going to be in charge somewhere and they're going to start doing the same thing. And the Democrats are going to get up and, and yell and scream. And the Republicans are going to cite this time, 2023, and these situations uh, to defend themselves. And uh, so we've just given them ammunition by allowing this to happen. Boy, uh, what a wild week with lots of twists and turns, and it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Former New York Governor David Patterson, so great to have you here on the Cats Roundtable this Sunday morning. Thanks so much for being with us, and uh, boy, a great, interesting perspective. Thank you, Rita, and enjoy the rest of the three-day weekend. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.